Well, for the uh, next several weeks, John and I are doing sermons that are based on um, what did Jesus ask? Jesus asked great questions. Uh, in fact, I think uh, you would be surprised if you took count of them how many times Jesus engaged in dialogue with people and posed significant questions to them. And uh, it's one of the, I think, really important things about Jesus' teaching method. We're going to explore one of them today, but there'll be a different question each, each one of the next, I can't remember, I think six weeks. Um, and the question in this very short passage from Luke today is uh, raised, it's actually three questions just in that little short passage. What is the kingdom of God like? What is the kingdom of God like? And then, to what shall I compare it? And he raises that question twice. To what shall I compare it? And then he goes on and does these two very short little parables. Uh, now, these parables, uh, Jesus must have used them quite a bit because all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, have these parables included or something like them with little different variations on them. Uh, and you've probably heard this uh, many times before, especially the mustard seed one, right? Um, but what I'm gonna ask you to do is shake off those interpretations because I think Jesus is really about something different here. So I have to tell you what I want you to shake off, and I gotta tell you what I want you to put on. So, uh, one real obvious way of thinking about the parables, and it is interesting in and of itself that it's not always obvious what a parable means, isn't it? Um, but the traditional way of looking at these parables is that uh, they are about the kingdom of God having small beginnings but becoming something big. So it's about a contrast between a tiny mustard seed and a big mustard tree and a uh, little tiny bit of yeast and a raised loaf of bread. Uh, and I think when Jesus uses uh, that parable, in some of the Gospels, that's, that's what he's talking about, that, that, um, that the Gospel starts out in small ways that over time and beyond our expectations have a big impact. And, and faith is like that. Um, but I think it's not what Jesus is talking about right here. So first thing, uh, just need to give you some background about the time, mustard seed. How many of you have seen mustard seeds before? Yeah, they're this, and they're little round uh, yellow things, right? And we grind them up and we use them to make our mustard spice, our, our ground mustard. Um, that is not the kind of mustard seed that Jesus is talking about. That is a small seed. That uh, seed, comes off of a plant that's about this big. It's, a, it's an herbal kind of thing. I mean, I don't know technically if it is, but it's like that. 
that's not, that's not what Jesus was referring to. In the uh, Persian Gulf area uh, and in the very arid regions around the, the Mediterranean, uh, there is something that is a mustard tree that grows. They are not related to one another. Um, although I understand the mustard tree has some of the same uh, fragrance that a mustard seed that we use to, for a condiment does. Um, the mustard seed for that tree is actually quite a bit smaller, if you can imagine. I tried to find my necklace that has a little mustard seed in it. I couldn't find it. It's so small. <laughs> but, um, but it's a really tiny little seed. And, um, and that seed gives rise to a tree that can be 20 feet tall and it has very low to the ground spread out branches. And actually there are, there are some kinds of, of things hanging off this tree that uh, ancient people, and I think some people still today, will take off and use as toothbrushes. They're kind of bristly and it has an oil in it that's kind of a natural antiseptic. So that's a mustard tree. Um, that's the one that Jesus was talking about. And of course, there is a big contrast between the ti tiny seed and something that can get to 20 feet tall, takes a long time to grow. Uh, interestingly, they're not usually cultivated. Uh, so we'll come back to that. And then the, the, the woman in the yeast. Uh, how many of you have baked something with yeast in it? It's, it's a bit of a trick, isn't it? Yeah, it's good, good for you. That's what you're thinking the yeast is. <laughs> but what we think of as yeast is actually active dry yeast. And it's little tiny grains. Um, it has to be rehydrated and some other things in order to activate it. But that's a modern invention, active dry yeast. What they would have had for yeast would have been uh, much like what we do when you pass around a sourdough starter. When they go to make bread, they have to hold some of the wet stuff back, that's the, the leavening, and, and save it for the next time they make bread. So um, this makes the parable have a lot more sense. The woman is hiding something wet in a bunch of dry flour. If you just take an active dry yeast and hid it in a bunch of dry flour, you would end up with Nothing spectacular happening until something else happened, too. <laughs> so uh, that's just to help you understand where I'm going to go with this a little bit. So Jesus uh, usually is seen to be doing these little parables where the emphasis is on from going from small to large because he was starting to meet opposition and he was trying to tell them, uh, reassure his disciples that what, it, what they were doing right, right around at this time was pretty small, but it was, it was something big was coming. They were going to make a big impact. And it was kind of to reassure them in the face of the things opponents were saying. That interpretation does not work in this, in this part at all. And I, I want to tell you why, because I think it's really important about what Jesus was getting at. Uh, this story of these little parables is part of a longer section that Jesus is teaching about true discipleship. 
what it really means to be someone who is a Christ, a Jesus follower. And um, in fact, right after this uh, little episode with the two parables, comes the, the sayings about it's, the way is narrow, and not everyone who, who tries to get there will, will get there. Um, but it's framed on either side by controversies, but a very particular kind of controversy. On either side of this teaching, Jesus is harshly criticized because he heals on the Sabbath. Now, it's very clear, in a way, that Jesus was breaking a well-established rule, healing on the Sabbath. Um, and it's very interesting how he handles this. He heals on the Sabbath two times. And I want to uh, show you how he deals with the opposition in terms of questions. Uh, by the way, I can see some of you are really thinking, now where the heck is she going with all this? Let me just tell you the conclusion, so then you can <laughs> ease off worrying about. The conclusion is, and I'll repeat this at the end too, Jesus reminds us in his questioning that living a life of faith requires imagination. Now I gotta show you how you get there. Imagination, imagination, questions prompt, invite people to imagine. So, um, th the first thing that he does is he heals a woman who's been bent over for 18 years. And she's healed. And, and people are really upset. Why didn't he just wait until it's not the Sabbath to do this? And what does he say? He answers them, with a question. Don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from its stall and lead it out to get a drink? Then isn't it necessary that this woman, a daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan for 18 long years, be set free from her bondage on the Sabbath day? His question is inviting them to imagine a comparison of what they would do if this had been one of their animals, and then to see her as a daughter, a daughter with a common lineage to them. After our parables, Jesus comes back again. He's on a sab uh, sharing a meal with Pharisees on Sabbath, and a man is suffering from an abnormal swelling of the body. And Jesus says to them, does does the law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? And, uh, and they won't say anything because they know what he thinks and they don't want to fall into the trap. And he asks them a question then again. Suppose your child or ox fell into a ditch on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you immediately pull it out? But they had no response. He was asking questions to invite them to use their imagination, which is a primary tool of empathy. What must it be like to be this person? He doesn't say, I'm going to teach you that rules aren't important. He doesn't go that direction at all. He just says, what if? 
I think that Jesus asked questions so much, and in this specific circumstance, because he wants to encourage the important role of imagination in the life of a person of faith. Now, you don't hear that very often, do you? Uh, we talk about trust and obey, so we turn about using our heads to know what we believe, to understand. Uh, we even talk about using our hearts uh, as faithful people, learning how to love. We don't often very, very often think about the importance of imagination in a life of discipleship. But this is what Jesus, I believe, is encouraging. I don't, I'm not going to answer you the question for you, is, is this, am I giving you a new rule? No, I'm giving you a new tool. Imagine. Imagine yourself. Um, now, I'm going to further back this up. I can see you're all just thoroughly unconvinced. Uh, by the way, none of the interpreters are reading. Uh, I couldn't, if I looked far enough, I probably could have found, found a scriptural interpreter who agreed with my interpretation. I didn't have that much time, so I just kind of had to cut loose. <laughs> when Jesus asked the question, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? He doesn't say the yeast and the mustard seed. He talks about people's actions. A man sows a mustard seed in his garden. Uh, now, our interpretation was, our translation was supposed to be more inclusive, so they say someone. It actually ended up being less inclusive because Jesus specifically says a man sows a seed in his garden. And then he talks about a woman who takes yeast and some of your translations will say she takes yeast and mixes it in with flour. That's not right. It, she hides it. She hides yeast in flour. Very strange. It's clearly in the Greek, the word is hide. Uh, it's crypto, so encryption. So she's hiding yeast. So the kingdom is like these people who are acting and working with these natural processes. And I want to think for a minute about how strange, actually, their actions were. So a mustard tree is not something you would normally sow in a garden. How many of you create a garden and then put something in it that you're not going to eat and that will draw birds? So when you understand what the mustard seed tree, uh, tree actually is, it's really unusual that the man sows it. And what does it say the purpose is? At some point, it will grow large, and it will offer shelter to creatures. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like someone acting to create a space large enough to shelter others. The woman hides leaven in the flour. Now, we find this hard to understand because we don't know their measuring stuff and everything, but it, it, uh, the 
the term that's used for the flour is an extraordinary amount of flour. It is enough flour to make 150 loaves of bread. Thanks, Mom. I knew she was like that. <laughs> can always get your mom to laugh. Uh, so 150 loaves of bread. Who leavens 150 loaves of bread all at once? You know, once it's been leavened and rice, you've got to bake it. And you can't use, this is no preservatives. You don't, it doesn't say she a, has a bakery. She's got to give that bread away to other people. That seems kind of extravagant and silly. Why would you use all your flour with the leaven to create that much bread to give away? So the, the kingdom of God is like a woman hiding. Why would she hide? the fact that she's leavening 150 loaves of flour because people are going to think she's crazy and tell her to stop and you know you can stop leaven right at the beginning if you put too much heat on it too fast you'll stop the action you'll kill the yeast if you put too much salt in it right then you can stop the action you can kill the yeast she was hiding it so that it could do that extravagant thing on its own so she could feed lots of people. Pretty amazing. So the kingdom of God is like these imaginative people using ordinary processes to create big new spaces to nourish many people, to shelter creatures. Are you with me? Imagination. I really think that imagination, uh, I mentioned, I think it's an important part of empathy, understanding what another person might feel. I think it's an important part of, uh, there's a, Gertrude Stein, I think, said after, uh, in the midst of World War I, she said, all of this killing that's going on, the people must be failing to have imagination, a lack of an ability to imagine alternative ways to handle their disagreements, a lack of imagination for what a person's life could become if they kept it. In a lot of ways, I think that our, our impasses, our political impasses that we are at are, are, are because of a lack of imagination you know, I think about our, our immigration stuff right now. Are we a nation of laws or a nation of opportunity and compassion? Well, do we have to choose? Are we so unimaginative that we cannot think of a million different ways if we try to be both? But, but we get locked in these two-way things. Um, now, I think this is related. Uh, I'm just going to throw out there, maybe it's not. You can, you can decide. But I, I saw a, a really interesting article. Uh, it was in the New York Times a couple days ago. It was in the opinion section, and, it, and it's called, um, it's by Roger Cohen, and it's called uh, Airbnb is the new NATO, <laughs> which I thought was interesting enough to try to read it. And, 
and uh, how many people have been at Airbnb? Yeah, oh yeah. Do you realize it only started in 2008? Uh, it's already in 190 uh, countries around the world. But here's his very interesting premise. He said that, and, and this is true, it's one of the scary things in the news, nationalistic impulses are on the rise in many countries, including traditional stable democracies all over the world. Nationalism, it's all about America first or us first or, you know, keep others out so we can be more pure and, and take care of ourselves. And uh, this is not encourage cooperation between nations, right? Which is kind of like, I think that's where his NATO thing comes in. But he says, um, and he doesn't see that uh, necessarily going away anytime soon, but he said, he remembered, interestingly, he interviewed the guy who founded Airbnb. Remember when he talked about how uh, back in 2008 he was struggling just to come up with $150,000 to get it started. Um, and uh, he encountered all kinds of skepticism from people who thought that the idea of a peer-to-peer -peer home and room rental company would simply not work because they didn't think that people would trust one another enough to allow strangers into their homes, and they laughed at the idea that those strangers would be nice enough, honest enough to respect people's properties. But lo and behold, it's in 190 countries around the world. And the founder says, you know what? Airbnb without fundamental human goodness would not work. So they've been keeping data on this um, by nationality. So are there some nationalities that really don't manage Airbnb well? No, actually there aren't. There are people from all over the world are nice when they go in and stay in the other people's properties and manage to treat it well, and, and they break down all kinds of boundaries. He talks about in Hungary, where there is a very uh, nationalistic leader right now, uh, you know, spouting about all of the outsiders uh, you know, to Hungary, yet at the same time in Hungary there are a whole bunch of people who are in Airbnb and who have some of those strangers who are supposed to be the others, the enemies, regularly coming in and staying with them and having good experiences and cooperation and goodwill is happening independent of what the political leaders are doing and saying and acting. So people of imagination and faith can really find the way that works. So imagination, we're encouraged to be imaginative in the way we think about participation in the kingdom. It's not uncommon that a lot of people make their way to our doors who have grown up in pretty, uh, it's, it would be too strong to say authoritarian, but very um, authority-based religious systems where the ministers and there's official truth and you learn all of the right answers to all of the, the you know, basic questions and your job is to absorb it, obey it, follow it, and not question. And, um, and, and there's, 
there can be some wonderful things about that. Secure, safe, comfortable, but then people find themselves not being included because of sexual orientation or gender orientation and, and then find their way here. And sometimes I find that people want to come here and have just another authority tell them, yes, you're in, and now we can still give you all the safe, comfortable answers that we're right, and you still should just trust and obey. I have nothing against trusting and obeying, <laughs> by the way. But in the process of doing that, they leave half of themselves unawakened and outside. And I think Jesus' reminder is really powerful because our imaginations are so critically important to how it is that we figure out today what it looks like to live faithfully with those wonderful kernels of truth from the gospel as we try to make the world a more kingdom-like place. So, um, yeah, I'm done. I can't, I can't think of anything else to say. I, I, um, no, I'm not done. I could go on, but I'm going to make myself stop. I'm stopping. Amen. <laughs>